Welcome to the Adventist Church of the Woodlands podcast, where you will find sermons, devotional thoughts, and current event conversations, all based on a biblical worldview. Happy Sabbath, church. If we can find ourselves satisfied in Christ, then we have everything we need. Amen. Last week, we looked at Daniel chapter 1. And we learned several things. Primarily, the first thing we learned was that Daniel means God is my judge. In other words, he is in control. He's my advocate. He's my deliverer. And no matter how dark things get, no matter how last second things seem, no matter how much you feel you're about to fail, God is in control. And if we stay faithful to God, he will see us through. Even if I should pay with my life, even if I should pay with my life, I have a home in glory that I'll shine the sun. So death is never the final word if we are in Christ. And we learn, though, that God gave Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar. So even though it says Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem, it was God that was in control. He was punishing his people for their disobedience. And the king tried to take the best of the best and assimilate them into his kingdom, in, all, in other words, so they would forget the God of heaven. And it happens today in society where they want you to be assimilated to society so that you will turn your back on the God who has given you life. But nevertheless, Daniel said, I propose in my heart, Daniel proposed in his heart that he was going to remain faithful to God no matter what. And that is the same attitude we should have, that we're going to remain faithful to God no matter what happens in our life, because if we have God, we have eternal And shortly thereafter, Daniel was brought to the test. And it didn't have to do with Babylonian education, because you can go to secular schools. It had nothing to do with people trying to change his name. The test came over what he was going to put in his body. And Daniel refused to put anything that would defile his body. And we saw that Christ himself, when he was hanging in agony on the cross, refused the wine mixed with myrrh to numb his senses because he wanted to be of clear mind during his most difficult moment. He wanted to stay focused on God. And God rewarded Daniel and his friends. They were elevated into the kingdom. And now as we dive into chapter 2, you realize that this story happens somewhere between Daniel chapter 1 and his graduation from Babylon University. So this was a test in the middle of his study. And so we're going to be just in Daniel 2. I'll be reading other Bible verses, but nevertheless, I'll read them. We don't have to go there. We're in Daniel chapter 2. It says, now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. So they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Now, many of us who grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist church, we understand Daniel chapter 2. We've heard it enough, but I want to perhaps look at it in a different way. A lot of times we look at Nebuchadnezzar and we look at Daniel and we look at it as God versus the king, God versus these nations. But God is not against anyone. God is trying to save everyone. 
And so this is not God against Nebuchadnezzar. This is God doing whatever it takes to bring this pagan king into a faith-saving relationship. Nebuchadnezzar was an evil man. If you read in the Chronicles and the Kings and Habakkuk, as a matter of fact, Habakkuk was so shocked that God was going to use Babylon to punish Israel that he was in awe. He was asking God, why are you doing this? He was so shocked that God could not give him an answer except, trust me, for the just shall live by faith. And I know many of us have been in situations where you don't know what God is up to, what he's doing, but we have to trust him by faith, for he will never leave you nor forsake you. Although you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he will be with you, and he will bring you all the way to glory if you let So God is not against Nebuchadnezzar. Think about this pagan evil king who has, as a matter of fact, he was so evil in one of the deportations for Jerusalem, he took the king from Jerusalem all the way to Babylon with a hook. I think it was in his mouth or nose. No. How would you like to be dragged 1,500 miles with a hook in your nose? He didn't play around. But it doesn't matter how evil you are. If there is but a crack of opening for the Holy Spirit to come in, God will do whatever it takes to bring you home. Never ever think that I am too far gone from God. Never ever think that he doesn't love me. Never ever think that even if I've done some horrible things, that God is not after you. As long as, listen, as long as there is breath in your lungs, he is pursuing you with an everlasting love. So this is not God against Nebuchadnezzar. This is God trying to win this king because think of it. If he converts, if God converts a bum in Babylon, does that have any influence upon the king? No, who cares? The king says. But if God can convert the king, do you think that has an influence on the rest of the kingdom? You better believe it. And so God is not against Nebuchadnezzar. God is not against this pagan king. God is using him at his vessel. But ultimately what God wants for you and for me and for any pagan person out, th out there is to have a faith-saving relationship with him. To be in the kingdom despite your past. To be in eternity despite your failings. To be with him in the presence of holiness for the rest of your life. So God is not after or against Nebuchadnezzar, he's after his heart. And so he sends him this dream. This dream, as we will see, of this statue. But the king couldn't remember the dream. The king couldn't, he knew it was important. He knew that there was a message there because the Babylonians believed that they communicated through dreams. But he couldn't remember. And so he takes his, the best of his best, and remember, what we learned in Daniel chapter 1 is that we are in the battle of two philosophies. The philosophy based on the dictates of Babylon and the philosophies based on the dictates of Jerusalem, which is God, their king. So these two different philosophies. So he calls his philosophers. He calls the best of his best. And he asks this request beginning in verse. Then the Chaldeans, verse 4, Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. A little flattery goes a long way. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. Pay attention to what they say. They said, King, tell me the dream, and I will give you the interpretation. Well, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't remember the dream. 
but he's also so troubled by this dream that he wants to make 100% sure that whatever interpretation he gets is a right one. So he ups up the ante. He makes it more difficult. He tells them in verse 5, Then the king replied to the Chaldeans, The command for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your house will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. So he says, no, 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 I'm not giving you the dream. You have to read my mind, decipher what the dream is, then and only then will I trust the interpretation. Now, let's be honest, that's impossible. And even Daniel acknowledges that is impossible for any man to do. And husbands get in trouble all the time. I'm not even going to finish the rest of that. So we can't do it. We can't read minds. But Nebuchadnezzar is firm in this. And now, if you didn't think he was an evil man at this point, because God is working on him, we don't go from evil to saint overnight. He's threatening to not only destroy them, but their families, their houses, everything was going to go up in smoke. He was going to destroy it all. Verse 7 again. Then they answered a second time and said, let the king tell the dream to his servants. And we will declare the interpretation. Back and forth they go. The king replied in verse 8. I know for certain that you are bargaining for time. Inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretations. Now pay attention to the next three verses. Then the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. Truth is always mixed with error. What they just said now is 100% true. There is not a man or by implication a woman on earth who could declare the matter to the king in as much as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldeans. Have you ever wondered why no tarot reading person who has their shop in some mall like wins the lottery, right? If they knew divination, right, they'd be better off than the meager life they're living. Verse 11, moreover, the thing which the king commands is difficult, and there is no one else who declare the king except God's, now look at verse 11, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. And Deborah, I know you have King James, New King. What do, how, how does it read, the flesh part? In, in verse 11, whose dwelling place is not with? With flesh, right? And so, remember, these are two philosophies. The Babylonian philosophy and the, and the, and the God's philosophy. And so the Babylonians are saying, look, this is impossible. We can't do it. No man could do it. And the people who can, rightly, are the gods, and they don't dwell among us. They don't dwell in flesh. 
Now, if you are a seasoned a Christian, you understand there's something wrong there because the Jews didn't have that understanding. For the Bible tells us in Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Two different philosophies. They don't believe that gods can dwell with us. And we know that God unto you will be born and you will call his name Emmanuel. For God is with us. As a matter of fact, the Bible in Exodus says, God says, build me a tabernacle that I may what? Dwell among you. In, in Hebrews chapter, I, I have it here in Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews chapter 10 verse 5, he says, sacrifice, Jesus speaking, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. The God of gods did indeed come in the human flesh. He did dwell among us because the difference between the philosophy of Babylon and the philosophy of God is that if you follow the philosophy of Babylon, you have a God that is not intimate. Leads to no intimacy, leads to no personal relationship, leads to rituals, and leads to a God who is out there but not with us. And the truth is, God wanted an intimate relationship with Nebuchadnezzar, and he wants an intimate relationship with you. If you ever, well, when I, let me speak about myself, whenever I feel that I'm not close to God, I know it's not God who moved away. It's been me. And so it's an invitation. It's not to get you down and to pray, come back to me. It's an invitation that God says, come. Come find rest in me. Come. You've been burning that candle at both ends. Come and rest with the God who is intimate, to the God who wants to be with you. As a matter of fact, Revelation, oh, look at how intimate God is in Isaiah 53, 4. He says, surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Our God is so intimate with us that he took your sins and my sins. And he bore them on the cross. He took your place and you take his place. So that in you may be seen complete righteousness while in him we see sin. The Babylonians have a God that is out there, that is not intimate, that leads to ritual, dry ritual, that leads to people giving up on God in desperation. But our God walked this earth. He knows your pain. He knows what you're going through. He knows when your family is sick. And he wants to hold you and bring you all the way home. Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people. And, and listen how intimate he wants to be and God himself will be among them. One day, this sinner who's been redeemed by grace will stand face to face to the God of the universe. He will hug me. He will put a crown of life on my head. And by the grace of God, I'll hear the words, Thank you, good and faithful servant. We all have past things that we're not proud of, things that we would not want displayed on the screen. But he knows that and he loved us. Anyway, I love the song. How does it go? You know the depths of my heart, but you love me the same. We serve an awesome God.
The last thing I'll say about this flesh thing and the, and the history of the two philosophies of why this is important and the fact that we don't harp on this that much is because we want to get to the statue right away. But remember what John warned us in his epistles. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. He also says in, in his epistles, that who is the Antichrist? That which denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. These Babylonians don't think the gods can come in the flesh. Why? Because their whole philosophy is Antichrist. They're against the philosophies of Christ. And we see it in today where people want, I am not religious, I'm spiritual. Be careful with that. Because part of it can be right. But if you take it to its extreme, you have denied that God himself has established a religion in earth. His church, where the gates of hell, hell cannot prevail. Who is the Antichrist? That which denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. The Babylonians can keep their non-intimate God. We serve a God who wants a personal relationship with you. Because of this, the king, verse 12 became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that wise men should be slain and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill him. Now, why didn't they ask Daniel right away? Well, he's a student. He hasn't graduated yet. They didn't think he have anything to offer. Be leery of underestimating a pathfinder. <laughs> they know their knots. They know how to survive in the wilderness. Right? Sometimes we minuscule or we put aside our young people thinking they don't have the experience but Job tells us it's not by age but by a personal intimate relationship with Jesus Christ that gives us value that gives us wisdom so the verse 14 then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch the captain of the king's bodyguard who had gone forth to slay the wise men he said to Arioch what's the rush why do we want to destroy the wise men? I want to jump down to verse 16. So Daniel went and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Now Daniel is undertaking an impossible task from a human perspective. But he wants to live. And so he goes up to the king and says, look, give me some time. And the implication is I'm going to request the God you guys deny, the God you think is not intimate, the God who doesn't dwell in flesh, I am going to petition him and he'll give you the answer if he sees fit. So the king who didn't want to give him time decides, okay, this is a different approach. I'll give him time. Let's see what happens. Now there's two prayers that happen here. One is not written in scripture, which is the prayer that Daniel prayed to get the interpretation of the dream. And a professor of mine said that the reason that prayer is not there is because then we'd be reciting it like a Hail Mary or something. But the other prayer that is there is a prayer that once God gave him the answer, the very first thing Daniel did wasn't run to the king and tell him what happened. The first thing he did was praise God for the answer to prayer. Whatever blessings you get, let's make sure we thank God first before we share it with the universe. He wants to know if you value his gifts. 
And as the lesson was saying, Monica mentioned something about praise. I love the phrase that says, if we would praise him more, he will give us more for which to praise him for. Right? So let's live a life of praise. So Daniel gets, look at verse 19. Well, 18. So that, uh, yes, 18. So that they might request compassion from God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Verse 19, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven and listened to his prayer. Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He who knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. All of it was praise to God. None about look how wise I am, look how favored I am, look how God loves me more than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because he gave me the dream and the wisdom. It's all glory to God. And that's how our lives should be. And everything that we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, may we do it for the glory and honor. So they rush him in before the king. And listen to what Daniel says. The king, verse 26, then the king said to Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Now, I don't know how many days Daniel took, but you could picture that the king is sitting on the edge of his seat and he asked the question, are you able to give me the interpretation to the dream? And so I could bet you Nebuchadnezzar was waiting to hear, yes, I can. And look what Daniel says. Daniel says, Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about what the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. Stop right there. The king must be like, then what did I give you all this time for? But God, Daniel gave credit to where it belongs. However, however changes what? Everything that was said before. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the future, or my version says latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. So think about it. God wants to save this pagan king, but he gives them a vision of what? Of the future. And all of us have that desire to know what's going to become of my children. What's going to become of me at retirement? What's going to become of my parents? Or what's going to become of my children's education? We have in some shape or form, but God gave it to this king because he wanted, this was the avenue, the, the little glimmer of hope to reach the king's heart. And so he tells them that this is going to take place for the future, to let you know what will take place in the future. And here we are. You, O king, were looking and behold, there was a single great statue the statue, which was large and extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breasts and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet 
of partly of iron and partly of clay. You continue looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, could you imagine if you were the king? Because sometimes you can't remember a dream, but once it starts coming back to you, it comes back to you fast. And so Daniel's telling him this, and you could bet he was in awe. It was probably flashing all before him again, and he sees this statue, he sees the different meadows, and he's now ripe and ready for the interpretation. He's right, and this is why I love, and this is why Daniel chapter 2 is the most important prophetic chapter in all of the Bible. If we get this wrong, then all of prophecies in 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 of Daniel and all the book of Revelation are for naught. If you're off one degree from here to the moon, you'll be off over 4,000 miles. Just one degree. And so he now is captivated. He now knows that the God of Daniel can indeed reveal mysteries. And what I love about Daniel chapter 2 is that we don't have to guess at the interpretation. It tells us. So let's read. This was a dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hands and caused you to rule over them. You, Nebuchadnezzar, are what? The head of gold. It's clear. We don't have to interpret it. We don't have to come up with our fanciful interpretations. Babylon, represented by King Nebuchadnezzar, is the head of gold. Verse 39. After you will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over the earth. Now, what's interesting is that in the subsequent chapters, chapters 5 and 8, they tell us who the two other kingdoms were. Remember, we said we're going to build on top of each other. So we don't have to guess who the other kingdoms are. It's the Medes and the Persian, and then Greece. The book itself tells us in Daniel chapter 5 and then in Daniel chapter 8. Look at verse 40. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these pieces. And that you saw the feet and the toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron it will be a divided kingdom but it will have in it the toughness of iron in as much as you saw the iron mixed with common clay as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of, partly of pottery so some of the king's kingdom will be strong some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay they will combine with one another in the seed of men but they would not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with the pottery. So we look at it here now. As history has been given to us in Scripture, you can confirm this by a simple Google search. Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, Greece, the legs of iron are Rome, feet of iron and clay divided nations. Now, each kingdom was conquered. The Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon. Greece conquered the Medes and the Persians. Rome conquered Greece. 
But what happened to Rome? Rome did not get conquered. It disintegrated. It, it, it crumbled from within. And so that's why you have these divided nations. And that's why Europe has never been unified. Alexander the Great tried to unify it, failed. Hitler tried to unify it, failed. Men have tried to intermingle, the seed of men tried to intermingle in marriage and form alliances, but it has failed. In a book, A Thousand Shall Fall by Gerhard Hazel, he tells the story. Now he is a German soldier medic with a wooden gun because he didn't want to carry a real gun. And they knew he believed in the Bible. And one day his commanders brought him into the tent and asked him about Daniel chapter 2. Now he was scared because he didn't know what angle they were coming at. And they asked him, are we going to win this war? Basically, I'm paraphrasing. And Daniel gave him a Bible study off the record. Told him there is no way that you can win this war because the God of heaven has said, till the end of time, this kingdom will be divided. They dismissed him without any words. And he didn't know what was going to happen to him. I don't know if it was days later or weeks later, they bring him into the tent and it's a top supervisor for that area. And he thought in his mind as he writes, you've read the book, I guess, that this is it. Anybody who's not boosting morale is going to get executed and killed. But there's a gesture in the Nazi army that if you take off your cap in front of a superior, if the superior takes off the cap, then it's off the record. So they all did. And the other guys asked them, give our superior the same Bible study you gave us. Off the record, he gave them the same Bible study. And here we are. Germany lost the war. Not because they weren't strong, but because my God says who rules. He is in control. He is our advocate. He is our judge. No one will be able to unite because the prophecy is sure. The dream is certain and the interpretation is true. But let me point out why this is so important. If you notice here, the prophecy, as we understand prophecy, the prophecy begins with the dream. So that's the starting point. With the dream, it starts. And it continues unbroken until the rock that destroys the statue, which signifies the second coming of Christ, where we all get to go home, where we are put this experiment of sin behind us, and we are living in eternity with God. So the prophecy continues from the moment it's given all the way until the second coming. What you do not see here, and this is very critical, is that do you see a gap in the legs? Is there a gap in the legs? No, the statue is straight until it's destroyed, which is the second coming. And that is so important because in Daniel chapter 9, that builds upon Daniel chapter 2. They try to introduce a week where the Antichrist will come in the future. There will be three and a half years of tribulation. Then Christians will be raptured. Then you get a second chance for the last three and a half years because in the middle of that three and a half year, the Antichrist will come and it will be havoc on earth. But let me ask you a question. If you're not preparing for the crisis and the crisis come, will you be ready? And that's why it's so dangerous to separate that final week into the future and saying that Christians won't be around in the time of trouble. They'll be raptured. But when the time of trouble comes, if your feet are not grounded in the intimacy of God, you might give up in despair. 
The prophecy continues straight until God. So no one can deny the fact that the prophecy is straight. So when we get to Daniel 9, we must understand that that last week is not far out in the future. It continues the pattern that we see here. Now, in the early Adventism, there was a lot of people who would argue with us about who the head of gold was and who the Medes and the Persians. And they would start with Assyria, Assyria, or they would say that it was Antiochus Epiphanes. Nobody believes that anymore. They believe this. However, there is one objection that people still try to shoot out there that sometimes we don't know how to answer and I'm going to teach you how to answer because it's the only one objection they try to use. Anybody ever heard of the Qumran scrolls? Yes, they were the scrolls that found the majority of the Bible in this Qumran cave. You can Google it. And those manuscripts of the Bible, by the way, they have the full book of Isaiah, and it's the same Bible we're reading today. It's the same Bible. And these manuscripts are anywhere from 3 to 1 B.C. So in other words, they're over 2,000 years old. So the one objection people would, before we found the Qumran scrolls, that they try to throw at us, was that Daniel was able to predict the rise and fall of kingdoms because he wrote it here. You see why that would be a problem, right? Because if Daniel wrote it here, he had history to look back and say that, that he, God prophesied it. Because the Qumran scrolls date to this, they can't say he wrote it here. So how do you answer that? We can't prove it. There's one way to answer that. A little logic. So how many kingdoms we have? Babylon. Followed by what? The Medes and the Persians. Then followed by what? Greece. Then followed by Rome. And according to them, that's when Daniel wrote it. Right? How did Daniel know the kingdoms would be divided and never cling to one another ever again? If he wrote it during Roman time, he would have tried to guess another kingdom that superseded Rome. Right? Because the logic had been one kingdom gets conquered by the other. How did he know that it would be divided and still be divided 2,000 years? You know why? Because God told him at the very beginning at the head of God. God knows your inner thoughts. God knows, well, the Bible tells us it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing asunder even unto bone and what? Marrow. God knows your thoughts. You can't hide it. If, you're, if you hate him at that moment, express it. He already knows it. Be intimate with God. The more you open up with him, the more he'll open up with you. And he will show you wonders and give you peace even in the midst of the darkness. Because there's another lesson here. This prophecy is the foundation of all prophecy. There's no gap there in the, in the feet, in the legs and if you know the progression when we build on seven eight nine ten and we get to the book of revelation you know you're building on a firm foundation but there's another side lesson here if this prophecy is so important and it is then why couldn't the chaldeans read the king's minds give them a false interpretation and veer off prophecy in a different direction because the only one who can read your mind is god satan can't read your mind because if he could, he would have used that very opportunity to derail the king. That's how pivotal it was. So your thoughts, your prayers in silence are only heard by the living God. So Nebuchadnezzar is totally 
in press. For this reason, at the time, certain Chaldeans came, I'm sorry, verse 41, in the days of the king, no, 46, then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present him an offering and fragrant incense. Listen to what the king says of 47. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief perfect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the, abomin over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. If you're successful, don't leave your friends behind. If you are sharing the gospel with your friends and family, share it with a stranger. Don't take the beauty and the wonderful and the blessings of God and keep them to yourself. But one last thing before we close that we not, hardly ever talk about is the rock, right? We know it's the second coming of God. We know it's when he puts an end to this history. And we know that God will be the final kingdom that grows and fills the whole earth. But a friend of mine and I were having a conversation and we made some interesting, he made some interesting observations. Listen to this. Let's go to the next one. Right, you have the divided kingdom at the bottom is spiritual Rome and modern nations of Europe. Right, and those are the dates of when this took place. And the stone destroys the divided kingdom because that's in the time in the earth's history. And we'll learn more about the abominations of this divided kingdom in chapters 7, 8, and 9. But listen to this. In Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 5, you were stoned for worshiping other gods, especially the god of the sun. You were stoned, and a stone destroys the statue. In Numbers 15, 32 through 36, you were stoned for Sabbath breaking, and the stone destroys the statue in John 10, 31 through 33, you were stoned for blasphemy. And in Daniel chapter 7, 8, and 9, we'll learn that there is a power that claims to be able to change God's laws and is God himself. And in John 8, 4, and 5, in Deuteronomy 20 through 20 and 24, by the way, the statue not only, let me go back, the statue comes down like a fiery furnace. So the implication is it destroys the statue and it burns it up. This power claims to be God. This power is the harlot of revelation. This power claims to be able to deceive the whole nation. Now, in the Old Testament, when you were an adulteress, you were stoned for adultery. However, this power is going to be destroyed by fire. Why? Because if you were the daughter of a priest, you were not stoned. You were burned by fire. So the Bible is consistent throughout. There is a kingdom coming. And I don't want to get crushed by no stone. I want to be holding hands with my Savior as he walks me into the kingdom. But I don't want to go in there alone. I want to go in there with my wife and my three little precious daughters, knowing that we trust an intimate God, a living God. Daniel chapter 2, it's not so much about the statue, even though the statue is important. It's about God's pursuing the most evil person he knew at that time in that kingdom, the king. 
and loving him into a faith-saving relationship with him by the time we get into Daniel chapter 4. So it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter where your family has been. As long as there's breath in their lungs, keep praying for them. Keep witnessing, witnessing to them. Keep loving them that the love of God may finally come through. Daniel chapter 2 is an important prophecy. But if we miss the love of God for a pagan king, then the prophecy means nothing. Because God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. He didn't send a statue. He didn't send some prophecy. He sent the God who dwells in flesh. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the intimacy we see in Daniel chapter 2. The statue is important. It gives us the timeline of history. But you love this king and you love those Chaldeans whose lives were spared because the wisdom you have given to Daniel. Father, may you give us the wisdom through the health message, through scripture, through Bible studies, to give life to other people because of your Holy Spirit. We thank you and we love you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Adventist Church of the Woodlands podcast. You can find us at woodlandsadventist.org and you can visit us anytime. You're more than welcome. God bless you and have a great day.